So I mentioned earlier that Anapanasati is the only practice that the Buddha describes that he himself did. A specific kind of technique or way of practicing. And uh, he did it before his awakening, in becoming awake, and he did it after his awakening. So if you wonder what's next, <laughs> it's more of the same. It's also the practice that he taught his own son. And perhaps, you know, there's a certain poignancy when a father teaches a son. And the story, uh, we don't, doesn't specify how old the son is, but most people who venture a guess, they seem to think that he's probably in his early, his son is in his early teens. 13, 14, 15 or something. And the way the story begins is that the father and son are doing an ordinary father and son thing, if you're both the monks. <laughs> and they were going for alms in town. And uh, the way alms rounds are done, carrying your bowl in for, to receive the food for the day, you go um, in single file. So the Buddha was first and his son was following. And as they were walking along, the Buddha stopped and turned around and it said to his son, uh, whatever physical form there is, whatever appearance you have, you should consider that as not me, not mine, and not myself. And the son said, only form, only my appearance. And the Buddha said, no. Also your feelings, your perceptions, your mental formations, and consciousness. See it as not me, myself, or mine. And then the way this uh, sutta is written, the next line is, um, it says that uh, his son, Rahula, thought to himself, it is not appropriate for me to continue going into town for alms, having just been admonished by the Buddha. And then he went back to camp, back to where they were li living. There's no explanation, so the question is admonished. Nothing, nothing happening, so the Buddha turned around and told him, you know, appearances are not self. Don't see them that way. So one of the most common interpretation is that um, being a young teenager, uh, some of you might remember, the um, appearances count for a lot. How we look. And um, and also it's a time, the beginning of form, formation of kind of a more solid identity and 
individuating and kind of getting a sense of self and other and where we fit into the society and things. And this whole idea of identity becomes more important at this, time, this age. And as the interpretation, the commentary goes, um, tries to explain this, is that um, it's, it seems that the Buddha was considered maybe in the, we don't know what he looked like, but maybe in the norms of his time, quite handsome. And his son had some of his father's genes, so he looked a little bit like the Buddha. And so going single file with the Buddha into town, he had a certain conceit. Look at me. Look how I look. And when the Buddha somehow picked that up, he kind of turned gently, calmly, and said to his son, by the way, don't bother taking your appearance as something that you can identify as self, me, myself, and mine. So that's the commentary, so we, we don't know. But in any case, what we do know is the Sutta says that uh, he felt admonished and he decided to go back. Then, so that means he wasn't going to eat that day. And so he went back and there he saw Sariputta, the Buddha's main disciple. And Sariputta said to Rahula, I guess he picked up that something was going on, interesting. And uh, he said, you should ask, ask your dad. <laughs> um, about uh, mindfulness of breathing, about anapanasati. So, when the Buddha came back from his alms and after they had their me he had his meal and was settled, that's what an, uh, Rahula, his son, did. He went to his father and said, will you teach me about, I've heard that uh, mindfulness of breathing is uh, really effective when developed. It brings a lot of fruit and a lot of benefit. Can you teach me how to do this? And so he then gets, he then teaches his son the 16 steps of Anapanasati. But before he does this, he prepares his son for that teaching. And the first way he prepares him is to teach him um, to be equanimous, to have an equanimity about whatever is going on. And he does it with analogies. He he, he evokes the idea of space or the air that's around us. And, you know, you could insult the air, say all kinds of mean things about it, and the air is not going to bother, not going to matter if the air is not going to be affected by it. So he said, make your mind like the air. So whatever comes through, it kind of just like it's like passing through empty space, empty air. There's no resistance, there's no, it doesn't hit anything, it doesn't strike anything, it just make your, make your mind like air. And then he said the same thing for uh, water, like the ocean, like a vast large ocean. If you insult the ocean or if you spit in the ocean, The ocean stays the ocean, it doesn't care. So make your mind that way, broad, expansive, large, 
this idea of broad, expansive, large, so that things can happen and there's all this space and room. And it's like you get bigger. You're bigger than any event that can happen. And so it's, it doesn't disturb this, the, the ease, the quiet, the equanimity of the mind. He did the same talking to his son. He same for the fire element. Make your mind like fire. Or somehow the same way that fire is not disturbed by. And then make your make your mind like the earth. You know, imagine there in the vast plains of India. Imagine a sense of great expanse and solidity and. Maybe before they had real sense of even the size of the earth like we do. It's vast, solid earth. If you insult it or spit on the earth, the earth doesn't, it's unmoved. So in the same way, make your mind unmoving. So that was kind of the preparatory attitude, how to hold yourself. Maybe it's advanced practice to do that, but it's kind of a nice image or a nice idea. And then he taught his son about the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Also, I think, preparing the ground for mindfulness of breathing. This idea that there's love or care or warmth, empathy, kindness, compassion, appreciation of others. That's also part of the picture for developing Anapanasati. But think that, you know, mindfulness of breathing, you know, it's like, just forget everyone, just focus on your breath. But the context that he at least teaches it to his son includes this. And then he taught him the 16 steps of Anapanasati. But this idea of equanimity, you know, for some of us, equanimity is not the starting point that gets us started in Anapanasati. It's, we hope it comes as we do it, you know, as we go along and go along and just stay with the breath and do the whole steps. And with time, there is more equanimity, more subtleness, more calm. We relax the mental formations and the equanimity comes. But it might be nice to keep it in the background. It, this is kind of like the context for it. And, um, and to say a few words about maybe uh, some kind of equanimity that gets developed. I have a few times during this retreat, I have tr uh, tried to point out the distinction between what is known and the knowing of it. There is what we're aware of, the object of awareness, then there's the act of awareing, of being aware. And it's possible to feel or see, sense the distinction between those two. And one way to do that is just to switch, f move your attention around intentionally to focus on different things. And attention is the common denominator. It keeps there, it goes there, to this, to this. The object is different, but the attention is, I don't know if it's kind of the same, it's attention awareness, knowing, 
has similarity. It's distinct. And then there's, if once we get a sense of this, start getting a sense of this inner idea of knowing, awareness, attention, monitoring what's going on, self-reflective awareness, exactly what it is, as I said earlier in the retreat, we don't know what it is, it may be exactly what it is, but we know close enough what it is to be aware, to be present for something. And sometimes that idea of being present, that sense of being present, sense of being aware, uh, becomes clear, but also becomes clear that we're not often we're not aware innocently, meaning we're aware just you know just neutrally, just equanimously, just aware, and that's it. But there can come a lot of attitudes with being aware, a lot of expectations or desires or aversions or resistance or. You know, we, we, we want something, so we're aware a little bit emphatically. So, well, if the Buddhists want me to be aware, I'm going to be aware. Boy, you know, I'm just going to suck it to it. You know, and I practice sledgehammer awareness. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, I'm going to just, it's kind of like, I guess there's a, there's a game called the whack-a-mole. You know, so, you know, so, so I just bring my, you know, my mindfulness and like, okay, you know, like, <laughs> you know, trying to get rid of it or trying to do something, but that doesn't doesn't work very well. But um, but it, how we're aware is important, and so I want to show you this little example. I might have done this before, but you know, if um, there's a striker that I'm holding in my hand, this striker is one thing, and then there's the holding of it. And that's a separate thing. And I could think that the striker is very important. Any self-respecting Dharma teacher should have a nice striker like this. And I'm really attached to it. And very important to show it to all of you. And my self-worth is tied to the striker. So I'm so preoccupied with the striker that I don't notice how I'm holding it. But as I calm down and settle in and start being here more and more and my attention is not directed so much in all of you and showing off but just here in my own experience I calm down enough slow down I'm not so concerned about things and I'm just more and more here and then eventually I notice that I'm holding it with a tight grip and my knuckles are getting white it takes a while I'm kind of slow to catch on but you know eventually I catch on that, wow, this hurts. I didn't know how much it hurts. So one option at this point is to blame the striker and just throw it away, drop it. We have to let go of you know, all these things that hurt. But it's not the striker which hurts, it's how I'm holding it. Instead of letting it go, rejecting it, we could go like this. We can open our hand flat, palm up, and allow the striker just rest there. Still there, but it's just there. The striker is just as much in my possession this way as it is when I was grasping it. So how is how do we know something? It's possible to know with an open hand. 
it's possible to know with an open heart. It's possible to know with an open mind. And what we know is still there. But we don't have to be tightening up and squeezing, holding on. We can be like this. And this is closer to equanimity, closer to peace. This movement, this part of the movement of anapanasati, is this movement towards liberation, liberating the hand from its clutch, its own clutch. And I love the analogy or the use of the hand to represent freedom, because in a sense, when the hand is clutched in a tight fist, and we free it from the fist, the hand gets freed from itself. So there's something profound about that. The hand releases itself. And then the hand loses something. It loses the fist. But then it's so good that we want to hold on to what we have, so we grab it. But as soon as we grab it, what we gained is gone. You can't grab and tighten, you know, grab hold on with an open hand, with the open hand, because it doesn't work, right? So it's kind of, you, so this movement of free, freedom, of letting go, of liberation, relaxing, step by step. So the Buddha taught his son equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, and then taught him the 16 steps. Ending with breathing in, one observes relinquishment. Breathing out, one observes relinquishment. Ending with a fourth tetrad, all of which are exercises in observing, just observing. It's very simple to observe. In some ways, observing is simpler than knowing. You know, where there's recognition of what is, just observe. Maybe no name, what it is. Maybe at this point, no recognition is needed. Just observe. And this last tetrad, as I've said, is the wisdom factor. And this wisdom that is operating within, that we all have a capacity for, but it, we can't really identify it as ours, mine, me. It's not like I'm the one who's wise. There's the emergence of understanding that's very simple, but at the same time very meaningful and important. So what is this wisdom that can arise? How can I be so confident that there's going to be wisdom if you just settle down and get peaceful and, you know, have the attention and like this on the breathing? One of the definitions of wisdom that the Buddha gives is to know what is harmful and to know what is beneficial. To know what hurts and to know what benefits one, what's beneficial. That that's pretty simplistic stuff. 
you want sophisticated philosophy, that's not going to be it. Unless you have a sophisticated justification of why it's so useful and profound to just be aware of, to know the difference of what's harmful and what's not. So why is this so meaningful? It's kind of along what I said yesterday about the cessation of suffering. But as we settle down, as we kind of go deeper and deeper in this practice, the mind becomes clear, the heart becomes cleaner. There's a subtleness, there's a calm. There's a, maybe some people have a sense of purity. Some people have a sense of peace, space, stillness, many things. And, um, and one of the advantages of this, of being calm enough, is that it creates a reference point to be able to see movements of the mind that are normally not seen. You know, if you're running around town and doing 10,000 things and 10,000 phone conversations while you're texting, while you're checking the web, and while you're listening to the radio, and you know, you can, you know, doing all these different things that you person can do in the world, you might not, might not notice that you've come to walk into a, through a door to a store and that you're in a hurry to do that and so you're grabbing that door hard and fast to rush in. You might not notice that the greed or the impatience in your mind is actually an ouch. That actually kind of kind of hurts, but it, that hurt is so mild, it's masked and hidden by all the preoccupations we have. But imagine a life that's mostly preoccupied, and there's ten thousand, a hundred thousand of those little ouches through the day. In little ways in which we think, little ways in which we you know, have desires and aversions. And you can, some, by have it being on retreat like this and being quiet and still, we become more sensitive to the ouch. Oh, why would I do that? That's, and maybe it's not exactly ouch. Some people call it stress. Some people call it just simply a loss of a sense of goodness or a sense of well-being. A disconnect to oneself that feels kind of off. But, but so we can, now we can see the subtlety of all these little ouches. And we develop then the wisdom of ouch. To make it be even more simplistic. You know, just that we see it in a way. But to see it clearly is wisdom. Because if we see it clearly, the wisdom, not you even, you don't even have to want anything, but the wisdom knows about the, op the opportunity to not do that, knows the other side, knows what's beneficial. Probably some of you have had the experience here now of having some, some modicum of calm and subtleness here, and some of your mind is quieter than usual. And then, sure enough, some familiar thought comes back, some story, some idea, and you've done it so many times before, 
And you say, you know, something inside of you says, you know, I don't need to do this. That's enough. And it becomes almost like not even you doing it. Come back to the breathing. That's wisdom operating, a kind of wisdom. To avoid what's harmful, to avoid what's ouch, to avoid what's not helpful, and return to what is helpful. Come back here with the breathing. It's better than the alternative. So the examples I'm giving are quite maybe simplistic or kind of you know kind of small little things. But these small little things add up to make a life. Add up to become bigger and bigger things that we're ignoring and not seeing. But if we can really see with a calm mind, feel the calm mind, what the mind is doing, the movements of the mind, we'll have wisdom about it. We'll understand what's helpful and not helpful. Something inside of us will just almost naturally know, no, not that. Yes to that. And this is part of the reason why um, this fading away can begin happening. The wisdom of fading away because we have, we don't, no, not, we don't, I'm not going to feed this. I'm not going to keep going here. I'm not going to keep doing this. So certain tendencies we have are not being fed and not being reinforced. The experience of cessation, you know, temporary ending of something, just really dropped away, is a powerful reference point for wisdom. To be cynical and have the cynicism drop and stop. Wow. I mean, I don't have to do that way. I know something different. And you can feel the cynicism come back and say, wow, this, I didn't realize the cost and how painful this is. There's wisdom there to see that, to know that, to, see, to, begin, to begin another fantasy, desire fantasy, and to have done this well enough and have the still enough mind to see that in going off into that desire and that fantasy, there's a loss. There's a loss of some goodness or connectedness or something that was really nice to be here. There's a kind of a little bit of an ouch. But staying is an ah. I'm trying to be as simplistic as I can. The wisdom of ouch and ah. <laughs> you don't have to get, you know, check out all the books from the library or all the websites on Buddhist scholarship to understand what the essence of Buddhism is. You don't have to know the 72 kinds of emptiness. When the mind is still and quiet, it's obvious. Ouch and ah. And something inside of you will go towards the ah. It's that simple, believe it or not. So as we do this practice, um, there's a simplification of the mind, a steadiness, a calmness of the mind. And whatever degree that you're calmer than you usually are, you have access to some corresponding wisdom. The calmer or stiller or more peaceful you can be, 
the greater is your access, the greater is the range of wisdom and understanding that you can have. The Buddha said that um, um, there's a wonderful analogy of a mind becoming like a white cloth, a white cloth that is clean and spot-free. So, you know, imagine a mind that has no spots in it, no dirt, no stains, stain-free, cleansed, clean. And then he said, like a cloth, which a stain, clean, stain-free cloth, that cloth is available to absorb a dye. He said, just like a clean cloth, skin clean, absorbs the dye evenly and fully, so when someone sees clearly and their dharma eye opens, what they see is that whatever we experience arises and passes. Whatever has a nature to arise has a nature to pass away. And the way the Pali of this phrase is worded, it's, it's more like at the same time. Whatever arises, passes, and the rising and passing happen together. So in the beginning of the fourth tetrad, one observes the arising and passing. And here again, just like how ouch and ah can be so simplistic and so like, you know, uninteresting to a sophisticated mind and seem like it's not very interesting, profound or mature or something, it can be very easy to overlook the tremendous value that the Buddha put, or this whole Vipassana tradition put, on really seeing the arising and passing of phenomena. There's something about the, when we're still and quiet, that this is what we really experience, this rising and passing. It's as if we know, as I said yesterday, I think the other day, that there's nothing to cling to there, nothing to resist. We can just kind of relax into the flow of the change of the rising and passing. And we might resist it, but then if we look at the resistance, the strange things happens. It's also rising and passing. And then we say, well, you know, you know, I don't believe in this. And then we look at the I don't believe in it, where that's coming from, and that's a rising and passing. I once did a guided meditation with a woman where I think she was afraid. So we kind of asked, okay, close your eyes and be with the fear. Where do you feel the fear? And she said, someplace in her body. And uh, I said, feel, what, feel that what's in their body there. She did for a while and then, and then said, then what's happening? Well, that tension in my body is gone. And so then I said, well, what happened to the fear? And she, her eyes popped open like, then she, you know, like surprised because the fear was gone. Where did it go? 
you know, it had been so solid for her. So to, <coughs> to be able to see the arising and passing, see the impermanence, the change of our thoughts. If they're fast and furious, it just seems like they're solid, but as thoughts get quieter, In the, in the passing, between the passing and the arising, isn't there space? Is there freedom in the space between the passing and the next arising? If everything passes, if thoughts pass, and before the next thought arises, who are you during this period when you have no thoughts to tell you, to answer the question? If you can't use thoughts to say who you are, who are you? In this marvelous gap, is there any conflict? Is there even any problem in that space? And if the nature of this world we live in is the nature of arising and passings in constancy, there's something about that experience, tuning into it in a settled mind, a clean mind that is like a stain-free cloth, that the Buddha said opens the Dharma eye gives a person the experience of something profound about our life. And one of the things that's profound about it is that it gives a person the experience of the cessation of suffering. That in that, in that gap or in that passing away, it's possible to have a, a, a visceral, powerful, impactful experience of anything and everything that would qualify under the word suffering has stopped. And then a person knows that it's not necessary, not not obligatory or it's not inherent to suffer, it's not inherent to have the ouch. And this is the good news of Buddhism, this possibility. And it might seem kind of lofty and far down the line, difficult. In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. In some ways it's very ordinary and it's actually much more available in the simplicity of our day then it's often obvious. And then there's the relinquishment. Breathing in, one observes relinquishment. Breathing out, one observes relinquishment. And the relinquishment is more than just cessation, the ending of something. But it's kind of, partly it's the it's, it's ended for good. It's been given up. There are plenty of things that come and go on retreat. All kinds of things go that 
you won't be ready for it. Have them come back at the end of the retreat. They'll come back, unfortunately. And um, um, but you know, it's it's meaningful to have them go temporarily. But to really kind of gotten to gotten to the bottom of this attachment things and our delusions and really deep down inside and feel like something gives way, something unravels, something gets untied, something gets put down. And some of this also is related to a decisiveness. I, I, I associate relinquishment with a decisiveness. A decisiveness that, that yes, I'm not, I don't stand behind this anymore. I'm, I don't, I'm not into this anymore. This particular tendency of mind, this particular ap approach to life, this particular activity that I'm doing, I think I'm done with it. It's, it's, it's exhausting, it's enough. I've done it long enough. I've done this so much that I think I have the statistical evidence to convince me that the cost-benefit analysis is not in my favor. So, you know, clearly understand, no, enough. It might still arise, but enough. I'm not, I don't stand behind it, I'm not into it. I'm not committed to it, I'm not devoted to it anymore, I don't believe in it anymore. A number of years ago now, about 10 years ago, there was a woman at IMC who was dying. And um, the Sangha members who knew her liked going to see her in, her in the months that she was dying because she had an amazing equanimity and peace with her. I think people went just to, not to keep her company, but <laughs> but uh, you know, to be in the field of her peace and equanimity was quite something. And um, so I went to see her the last evening she was alive. And um, she had trouble breathing, so you know she couldn't get enough oxygen. And one of the, I guess, symptoms or something or consequences of that is delusions and hallucinations. And so she was laying there and she uh, kind of kind of said to me, my practice is not working anymore. I can't practice anymore. You know, she was clearly in the last minutes, hour, hours of her life, brain wasn't functioning so well anymore because of the oxygen thing and, and she couldn't kind of engage the practice that she had relied on the way she had before. She looked, she was, she was the first time in the months of her dying she was agitated. I said, what's happening? There's all, I have a lot of hallucinations. And all these strange things are happening, thoughts and 
but I can't practice with them. I can't be I can't be mindful of them. So I said to her, "All you have to do is not believe them." And she, the agitation went. She was calm, and then I left some little later, but. Then, I don't know, a couple hours later, she passed away, and I was told that she passed away peacefully. When uh, the Buddha was teaching his son, this teaching, he gave him the 16 steps of Anapanasati. And then he said to his son, to do this practice, it brings much benefit, much fruit. And if you do this, then your last breath when you die will be known. The last in-breath will be known and the last out-breath will be known. She says, that's it. Just and I imagine he said that because he thought it was really a good thing to die mindful. And if you have a little bit intuition or a little bit kind of a sense of this, the possibility of this anapanasati and how just staying with the breath, breathing in and breathing out, just being mindful of the breathing, being aware through the kind of peripheral attention of these all, the, all these things that we can pay attention to and as we deepen and get connected more here and how the relaxing and letting go is all part of it, that uh, it's pretty special to be able to die at peace, untroubled, content, peaceful, in the kind of way that deep meditation with the breathing can allow us to have this peaceful death. So here he was, his teenage son, not only teaching him how to meditate, because he hadn't learned yet, he was also teaching him something that would serve him in his last moments of being alive. Perhaps a time to also let go deeply at time also to have a kind of reliance, if that's the right word, on a certain kind of awareness, certain kind of mindfulness, sati, that makes that whole experience of dying I don't know what the right word is, but I feel I feel reluctant and shy to give it any definition or word. But not, certainly nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be agitated about, nothing to be in conflict with. And what would be, what would be better? To die with the agitation that you live your life with? Or to know how to put it down, die without it? So this ending of this teaching on Anapanasati the evoking this idea of dying and how we die adds a certain profundity or power to the wisdom of Anapanasati 
and to the wisdom of this, the wisdom of ouch and ah, the wisdom of being caught and not being caught. What's important for us? Once upon a time there was a man who in his last days of his life looked back over his life and felt that regrets about his life and how he'd lived. And he woke up one morning and he thought about the day and he said, I'm probably I have a few more days here. So I'll probably wake up tomorrow morning also. I don't want to wake up tomorrow morning and regret how I lived today. And so he put aside all his reg other regrets so he could live this day fully, live this day breathing, live this, live this, this day engaged in a path of practice, a path towards freedom, that when he woke up the next morning, he said, oh, that day, yesterday, that was a good day. I didn't get very far, there was, there was a lot of steps, 16. But, you know, I don't regret having started it. I don't regret how far I got. We always can start fresh. We can always engage now in something that's, I think, profoundly worthwhile. The path of practice. One version of it is Anapanasati. I've done this Anapanasati for myself, practice of mindfulness of breathing for, I suppose for well over, for over 40 years. And I have no regrets about mindfulness of breathing. I, I think it's so, so great. And it has given me a certain confidence about the value of letting go, the value of, uh, maybe I say it differently, because we can talk too much about letting go, these Buddhists. <laughs> but this value of um, not being caught not being in conflict, not being bothered, but not being indifferent either. Being present for this life in a full way so that the depth of our humanity, our life, our wisdom, our hearts, our compassion can flow in its own way, its simple way, in the way that's appropriate for us and who we are. So that we can become ourselves fully 
paradoxically as we learn to let go of ourselves. I have lots of confidence in this and I have confidence from doing this practice of Anapanasati and the depth that it takes us to know that if the conditions for dying are right then you know expectations are not such a good thing to have but if they are right I think it will be great the process of dying can't be any different than the process of letting go, relinquishing, freeing. That is the path of Anapanasati. And it just gets better and better. Deeper we go, it just gets better and better. Letting go. So I, you know, at least, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know, I have no idea if it's going to be the case, but it gives me a positive attitude towards an unfrightened attitude to the process of passing away, dying. Maybe breathing in, knowing it's the end. Breathing out, knowing it's the end. And allowing that end to be a release into peace. Thank you, and uh, take good care of yourself. The wisdom of this practice is the wisdom to know what is helpful and not helpful. It's a different way of saying ouch and ah. If you really know what's helpful, you have this evening, you have tomorrow, you have these days, to either discover what's really helpful or to try to live that way here. Thank you.